Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. This week's show is a special one. Our very first episode of Bench Talk was in August of 2018, so we just broadcast our 25th episode last week. Now, all of our old episodes are available as podcasts on SoundCloud. Just go to our Facebook page or go to the website for this radio station, forwardradio.org. Now, to celebrate this occasion, we want to replay some of our favorite science stories from the past. And that's what's on the show this week. All of these stories are from one of our first three episodes of Bench Talk. You might have missed them. We'll start off with my story about sleep patterns in primates. Then Dr. Ashley Best will fill you in on about the role of viruses in human consciousness, which is really quite provocative. And then I'll tell you about a study showing what happens in musicians' brains when they're playing music. And finally, Ashley will be encouraging all of us to exercise more. She'll tell us about research demonstrating a link between exercise and our immune system. So each of these stories follows the same theme. They're all about human biology this week. Our brains, our immune system, even our consciousness. They all help describe what truly makes us human. Hope you enjoy these stories as we celebrate this important milestone for our radio show. We're 25. I want to talk for a few minutes about sleep. You know, the recommended minimum amount of sleep that we need every night is seven hours. And Kentucky, although we're known for a lot of different things, One of the things we're distinctive for is a lack of sleep. Something like 40% of adults living in Kentucky are not getting that minimum recommended seven hours of sleep every night. Other states are doing a lot better, like Kansas and Oregon. There are about 25% more people there who are getting adequate sleep compared to us. Now, sleep is very important for our overall health. It's essential for maintaining a healthy immune system. It's very important for energy conservation. And it's also the time when memory consolidation occurs. And memory consolidation is what's important for mental performance and our emotional health. I want to tell you today about a pair of evolutionary biologists who just published a paper where they looked at the sleep patterns of 30 different primate species. So they compared the sleep habits of primates like chimpanzees, baboons, lemurs, macaques, marmosets, squirrel monkeys, etc. And they compared those primates with our favorite primates, the human. Now these researchers actually didn't measure sleep patterns in these different animals directly. They used data that had already been collected by other researchers. These other researchers had examined sleep patterns in these different primates that were living in captivity. 
like in the zoo or, or other situations like that. They needed to do this because they wired up the animals to measure their heart rates, brain waves, and things like that. But these researchers argued that it's okay to make assumptions about sleep patterns measured in animals that were in captivity because they claimed that animal sleep patterns don't really change across environments. And one example they give for that are humans ourselves. No matter what part of the planet humans live, and whether they live in the city or the country, whether they're hunting-gathering societies, they all sleep about the same amount of hours, about seven hours a night. Now, one of the interesting things about this project is that they gathered all this data about how long animals sleep and what's going on in their brain during that time, and they use that data to make predictions about how long an animal actually should be sleeping every night. In addition to examining their specific sleep patterns, they also looked at the behavioral patterns of these animals. Do they live in groups or do they are they solitary? Do they live in trees or on the ground? What type of food do they eat, etc.? I'll bring up a couple uh, extreme examples. Elephants, for instance. Elephants only sleep two hours a day. It's thought that's because they're so big. They have to spend a lot of time foraging food. They travel long distances, always in searching for food. But they really can't run very fast, so they can't really escape from predators very well. And so the belief is that they stay awake a lot. They only sleep two hours a night because they need to keep an eye out for predators. On the other end of the scale, there's bats. Bats who fly at night and primarily eat insects they can sleep as much as 20 hours a day. Now, two of the important parameters that these researchers were interested in among these 30 different primates was the sleeping time. How many hours are they in sleep every night? And then REM, rapid eye movement. REM is important because that's when our sleep is the deepest. That's when typically we're having very vivid dreams. And researchers can actually measure the REM period, the rapid eye movement period, because there's a lot of brain activity, even though we're very deeply in sleep. Let me tell you about some of the other parameters they looked at in these 30 primates. Diet, what did they eat? Basically, it's been observed that foliovores, these are animals that primarily eat leaves, they tend to have less REM sleep. But they also classified the primates on whether they were insect eaters or seed eaters or fruit eaters or, of course, whether they were omnivores or not. They also looked at body mass. The larger the body, the more time spent foraging for food, and therefore they're probably not sleeping. How far these animals travel every day in nature? Because the more they travel, the less likely they're going to be sleeping. So that's what's going on with elephants. Another trait they looked at was where the animal sleeps. Now, primates that primarily live and sleep in trees, they tend to get longer sleep every night because they're more protected from predators up there. But primates that sleep on the ground, and that would include humans, they're likely to sleep less because they're more vulnerable to predators. They need to stay awake longer to keep an eye out for their safety. But the reason they probably sleep on the ground might be to run away faster, especially with humans. With our two legs, we can run very fast. They looked at group size. Basically, the larger numbers a pack of animals are, the more likely they're going to sleep longer because there's safety in numbers. And there's the question of whether the animals are nocturnal, where they're feeding at night, or whether they're more active in the daytime. Basically, animals that are active in the daytime tend to get lower amounts of sleep. 
whereas animals that are nocturnal, where they're feeding more at nighttime, they tend to get quite a bit of sleep. Two additional observations about these nocturnal primates. They tend to not sleep in very large groups. Sometimes they even sleep alone. And they tend to pick areas to sleep that are very hidden, very isolated, because they're so vulnerable all day. The other thing that's been observed about nocturnal animals is that they not only sleep all during the sunny hours of the day period, but they also sleep through the dusk and the dawn. So they really only come out to forage very late at night in the very darkest, deepest times of the evening. And another parameter they looked at is what's called sexual dimorphism. Sexual dimorphism is the differences between male and female other than the sex organs. So it's believed the more sexually dimorphic a species is, the less sleep they're going to get because they're spending more time competing for a mate. So these researchers looked at all these different parameters, and there's others I didn't even mention. And what they tried to do was predict how long each one of these primate species should be sleeping. And for humans, they concluded that we should be sleeping nine and a half hours for every 24-hour period. Nine and a half hours. Boy, that seems a little long for me. But when I look into it, the National Sleep Foundation suggests that adults should be getting seven to nine hours of sleep every 24-hour period. They recommend children get between 10 and 14 hours per daily period. And so although nine and a half hours seems a little long, it might not be totally unrealistic. So these researchers predicted, based on behavior and biology of these different 30 primate species, and they made predictions about how long each of them should be sleeping. Like I mentioned, in humans, it's supposed to be 9.5 hours. And then they wanted to test what do these animals actually sleep. And again, these are animals in captivity, but it's believed that it's not that much different from how they would be sleeping in the wild. And there's quite a range in sleeping patterns. Chimpanzees and baboons only got about 10 hours of sleep every 24-hour period. The longest sleeper was the three-striped night monkey, which slept for 17 hours every 24-hour period. It's because they're nocturnal animals. Humans were at the bottom of the list. We got the shortest amount of sleep compared to any other primate, seven hours, seven hours of sleep. And this matches pretty well with other surveys and research studies about sleep patterns of people. Most of us are getting seven hours of sleep. So they made predictions about how much sleep each primate should be getting and then how much they actually do get. And the biggest outlier, the one species that differed the most between what they actually got in sleep and how much they should be getting, was us people. Another way that humans were different than the other primates was the amount of REM sleep, the rapid eye movement. Remember, this is when you're in your deepest sleep, where you often have very vivid dreams. We're getting about 1.5 hours a night in REM sleep, and this is more than most of the other primates. The only other primates that got more REM sleep than we do are the ones that are sleeping, like the nocturnal animals, the ones that are sleeping really long time. So we're the winners when it comes to REM sleep. And this is important. This, this might be one of the reasons humans are so successful is the amount of REM sleep we get. It's very important for consolidating our memories from the previous day. It's very important for maintaining healthy emotions and for our ability to develop insights or deeper understandings of people or things. And another important thing happens during REM sleep, the rapid eye movement sleep. It's where we experience threat rehearsal. 
Threat rehearsal are those bad dreams you have, nightmares, where you're running away from something or you're being threatened by something or another. It's believed that this is a type of rehearsal for us so that when we're faced with traumatic experiences in real life, we're able to deal with it better because we rehearsed it in our REM sleep. Now, the bad thing about REM sleep, though, is that it reduces what they call vigilance. You know, when you're in that deep, deep sleep, you're less attuned to your outside environment. And so we're very vulnerable to predators at that time. So animals that are going through long REM sleep periods are really much more vulnerable to outside threats than those that have shorter REM periods. So humans are real outliers. We get less sleep than we should compared to all the other primates they looked at. And we get more relative REM sleep than the other animals. Towards the end of their paper, the research speculate about why humans are such outliers. How come we're getting so little sleep? How come we spend so much time in REM sleep? And it's thought that maybe there's evolutionary advantage to it. The less time we spend sleeping, the more time we have for productive activities like learning new skills, inventing things, attaining new knowledge, teaching our allies, and teaching our spouses and children. And that high risk of REM sleep maybe is helping us with things like memory consolidation, threat rehearsal, and enhancing our emotional well-being, our ability to understand complex ideas. So maybe the less sleep that we get has an evolutionary advantage. The authors also take a little time out and mention Alzheimer's disease. None of the other primates apparently are susceptible to Alzheimer's disease. And these authors speculate that maybe our unusual sleeping patterns are making us more vulnerable to Alzheimer's. So the take-home message from this paper for me was, uh, yeah, maybe there are some evolutionary advantages to getting very little sleep compared to other primates and having all that REM sleep. But on the other hand, it seems like we're really pushing our luck when it comes to sleep. We're really supposed to be getting nine and a half hours of sleep, and, and many of us, including myself, are getting six hours of sleep five hours of sleep, less than that even, we're really putting ourselves at risk when we get that little sleep. Our bodies just aren't designed for that. Our immune system is weaker. Our mental capacities are reduced. Our emotional well-being is threatened. And so that reading this article was very helpful for me. It was a real wake-up call to try to get more hours of sleep every night. Thank you. Dave, I have a question for you. How much of you do you think is virus? Hmm. How much of your genome is virus? I don't know. I had the flu a few weeks ago. Are you <laughs> counting that? Other than that, oh, I would say maybe, oh, you know, 20%. Higher. <laughs> 30%. Higher. <laughs> oh, okay, half. <laughs> Close, yeah. So... I mean, this is a huge number, but scientists think between 40 to 80% of the human genome arrived from some sort of archaic viral infection. That wow. number is crazy. I mm -hmm. didn't expect it to be that high. Did you? No, that makes me feel small. <laughs> it does, um, but that's okay. So our genome is, is shaped by viruses, and, and viruses are genetic parasites. So they have a genetic code, and, and it the virus will infect a host cell and will hijack them and force them 
to reproduce their own viral DNA so it can go on and infect other cells. So it basically makes our host cells little factories for making more viruses. So this process is usually harmful for us, like when you get the flu, but every once in a while, uh, these viruses can inject their DNA into our genome, and then usually that's just benign. Sometimes they become useful enough to hang around. So this paper came out recently where they were looking at some of these um, ancient viral proteins that have kind of lingered in our genome, and they found one um, that's doing very important work in our nerves that seems to be from very ancient viral um, DNA. So that was acquired by four-legged mammals quite a long time ago. And so what this virus is doing, or this viral DNA, is making a protein that will package up genetic information and then send it out to the nerve to the next nerve cell. So it's, it's doing this very viral function um, that we think is important for consciousness. Wow. Now, um, is this anything like, anything like computer viruses? <laughs> kind of. I mean, <laughs> the virus wouldn't exist without us, just much like a computer virus wouldn't. But it's, it's doing this very helpful thing uh, in our cells. Well, what, how do you define consciousness? Oh, that's difficult. Interesting point you bring up is this viral protein that's called ARC. Um, this viral DNA makes a protein called ARC. And this can be found in, in four-legged animals. So, you know, we're special because we do have consciousness. But this event happened twice in history. Worms and flies also acquired this viral protein arc separately in a separate event, and their body also uses them. So somehow in us it's adapted for consciousness, where in these other organisms it hasn't. Yeah, and do they have a theory about how that happened? Not yet. So that's where this research is going. So, so what this did was I first identify that this action is being performed by this protein, and this protein is of ancient viral origin. So the next step would be determining how this actually plays a role in consciousness. Um, because if we get rid of this protein, the nerves will just wither away and die. Hmm. Now, viral genomes are pretty small. How come you said it was more than half of our DNA? So it's not just this virus. We've acquired a lot of different viruses during evolution. So many, many different viruses have been able to incorporate their DNA into ours to be able to shape what's going on. So it's not just this one in particular, mm -hmm. but a lot of them have contributed to it. So obviously this is kind of new and evolving research, so it'll be really exciting to see where it goes, and you know, maybe we can revisit this in a couple months. Here's a question for you. Does playing jazz music require a different pattern of brain activity than playing classical music? What do you think? Well, Keith Jarrett, who's a world-famous jazz pianist, had something to say about that. He was offered an opportunity one time to play a concert where he could mix classical music with jazz. He laughed it off and said, no, that would be an impossible thing to do. And I'm quoting here, it's because of the circuitry. Your brain demands a different circuitry for those two things. Well, maybe Keith Jarrett nailed it right on the head because I want to tell you about a paper that was published in the journal Neuroimage in April of 2018. And it's a paper by a group of physiologists in Europe these neurobiologists said about studying the brain activity in musicians who were trained in two kinds of music, classical music versus jazz music. 
Now, one of the big differences between these two kinds of music is that classical musicians depend heavily on the notes that are written down by whoever the composer of that musical piece is. Jazz musicians, on the other hand, are allowed or even encouraged to take liberties with the music. That's what they call improvisation. These researchers really focused on the training aspect of what it takes to become a pianist. So they wanted to know if practicing to play jazz music versus practicing to play classical music involved changes in cognitive motor strategies. And they wanted to know that if those altered strategies might be due to the long hours of training for each of those two genres. Their idea was that maybe brain activities in these two types of musicians might be different due to all the hours they spent training to play each of those genres rather than the intricacies and details of any specific musical composition. So the researchers observed two groups of pianists. They had 15 pianists who had been trained to play classical music and they had been training for at least two years. And then they had an equal number, 15, of pianists who had been training to play jazz music for at least two years. And then they gave each of these musicians either jazz compositions or classical compositions to play. And while the pianists were playing these pieces, they were hooked up to an EEG, an electroencephalogram. EEG consists of multiple electrodes that they stick on different parts of the scalp and they measure the ionic currents which reflects the electrical activity going on inside the brain. After analyzing all the data, these researchers reported that brain activity was indeed different in these two types of musicians, even when they were playing the same piano composition. One of the things they did in this experiment was while each musician was playing a given composition, they changed it. They randomly altered the composition so while the pianist was playing it, they had to adapt to it, the change. And they measured what was going on in the brain while the musician was reacting to this alteration in the composition. What they found was that musicians who had been trained to play classical music on the piano were on average more accurate in their playing but that the jazz musicians could adapt more quickly. They adapted 0.2 seconds faster than the classical musicians when there is a change, when there is an unexpected alteration in the score. Now this particular publication is not the first time that researchers have hooked musicians up to EEGs and measured their brain activity. It's been done before and the authors of this paper mentioned though that most of those other experiments have been done with musicians playing classical music. This is really one of the first times that researchers have focused on other kinds of music. So it's not to say that these other publications are wrong, just that the conclusions they drew may apply to musicians playing classical music, but they might not apply to musicians playing other kinds of music. We've always known that exercise is good for you. That is repeated all the time by medical professions, and it's something that we've observed in ourselves and our friends and family. However, researchers are still interested in how this actually helps us, and thus they study specific ways that exercise helps our body. One group of researchers in England studied a group of elderly long-distance cyclists. It was a really large group of cyclists, about 125 individuals, some of which are now in their 80s. Amazingly, these cyclists had the immune systems of 20-year-olds. 
That's probably great because as you all know, elderly people are more susceptible to infections, cancer, rheumatoid arthritis, and so on. That's because the immune system declines about 2-3% to a year starting in our 20s. This is called immunosenescence. There are many parts of our immune system. We have a basic defense to any foreign invaders. We call this innate immunity. Whereas we have a learned part of our immune response known as adaptive immunity. So when you encounter an infection, your body learns how to fight it off again. And they do this by creating antibodies that recognize a pathogen. One specific part of the adaptive immune system are called T-cells. They're called T-cells because they mature in the thymus. This is a small specialized organ that is part of the lymphatic system. It's located behind the sternum between the lungs, but these cells circulate in the body through the blood. In this study, published in the journal Aging Cell, scientists took blood samples from the long-distance cyclists and examined their T-cells. The elderly cyclists have more naive T-cells than their inactive counterparts. Naive means they haven't learned how to recognize any pathogens yet. This is good because you want to have more of those naive T-cells which give you the ability to recognize new infections when you encounter them. These cyclists also had a higher levels of a molecule called IL-7. This is known to protect these native T-cells. As we get older, the thymus slowly shrinks, eventually degrading into this tiny island of fatty tissue. At its max, it weighs about 30 to 37 grams. And by 75 years of age, it only weighs around 6 grams. So these cyclists had a lower level of the molecule known as IL-6 that causes this thymic atrophy. In a separate paper in Aging Cell, they found that these cyclists did not lose muscle mass or strength and did not seem to increase in body fat, which are usually associated with aging. Does this mean everyone needs to be an endurance cyclist until they're 80? No, no it doesn't. There are a lot of varying suggestions on how much activity people should have, but around 30 minutes to an hour of light activity a day is a good start, with some moderate to high activity mixed in. So, Ashley, those were cyclists that they were studying. What about other kinds of athleticism, like swimming or walking? Swimming is such a great high-endurance activity. I think that would probably be the same. Um, These researchers were kind of lucky in that there was this very large cycling club in their area that they were able to tap into for this study. Um, I think we would see the same results with with, uh, swimmers or runners, um, probably even tennis players, really any any kind of activity that just gets your you breathing heavy and your heart going. Yeah, and physiology is not a black or white kind of thing. You'd think even moderate exercise, maybe you get reduced levels of those IL, those interleukins, but still might be healthy. Yeah, I, I think that's the point is, is you really don't have to be those kind of crazy cyclists or marathon runners. It's really just a matter of doing something that gets your body active and going rather than just, you know, sitting on the couch watching TV. Yeah. Did they say anything about how long that effect lasts? Can I do one marathon? It'll last for a long time? (laughs) Oh, that's a great question. I think um, the study implies that you kind of need to be doing this more regularly and that just one marathon isn't enough to give you a little (laughs) boost for the next three years. So maybe that's you just do uh, a little walk each day and that equals a marathon over time. Yeah, that's (laughs) what I'm hoping. music you're listening to today is by Jason Shaw, his solo acoustic guitar from freemusicarchive.org. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. 
You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.